Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 31 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and on this episode, we are joined by one of the most interesting and unusual filmmakers in the world. He's Aussie-born George Miller, the man behind Mad Max, the original one from 36 years ago, and its sequels over the years, up to and including 2015's Mad Max Fury Road. In between, he also directed everything from The Witches of Eastwick to Babe, Pig in the City, and Happy Feet 1 and 2, and produced Dead Calm and the original Babe. But never has he received as much international attention and acclaim as he has for Mad Max Fury Road, which premiered at the Cannes Film Festival last May and then opened to a tremendous reception from critics and audiences. 97% approval on Rotten Tomatoes, nearly $154 million gross domestically, nearly $376 million gross internationally. But perhaps the most remarkable thing, to the amazement of even Miller himself, is that this film has stuck around all the way through this award season. It's shown up virtually everywhere. It's on the AFI's list of the top 10 films of 2015. It was a nominee for the top awards of the Producers Guild of America and the Directors Guild of America. And on Monday, Miller headed to the Oscar nominees luncheon as a nominee for both Best Picture and Best Director, two of the 10 nominations that the film received. While it's hard to pin down Miller as a filmmaker because he does sort of everything, It's less hard to pin him down as a guy. He has a reputation that is borne out in the conversation that we had as just the loveliest, most down-to-earth, humble guy who is as amazed as anyone at the trajectory that his career has taken. From a trained physician who was scrambling to put together money for the first $600,000 Mad Max film to the orchestrator of a $150 million project like Mad Max Fury Road, He remains the same hardworking, committed, and lovely guy that he's always been, according to anyone who's known him. And now at 70 years old, he's finally getting some appreciation for it. So without further ado, let's go to our conversation with George Miller. Thank you so much for coming in and doing this. To begin with, growing up in Australia, did you go to the movies a lot as a kid? That's about the only thing we did when I was young in Australia. We got television quite late. And there was radio, but, uh, you know, that was at night. And uh, most of the time was spent in play, except for Saturday, the Saturday matinee. And that was just a magical thing because every, like, routinely we'd go every weekend and there'd be the serial, the cartoons, and the often the A feature and the B feature. And uh, it was a kind of... Uh, a great childhood because then we take all that that we'd see and go out into the bush and, and horses and stuff and play act it out mm-hmm. so i often think of it as a an invisible imp- apprenticeship for making movies sure now how did you yourself first dabble in movie making even if before it was something serious just where did you have equipment out there how did you get into it well um we, we went to the city sydney australia went to high school there and then I, I went to medical school, and during that time at university, it was it was it was a good time because you could, providing you got through your courses, you could go. I went to architecture lectures, and you, it was exploration. It was it was a great time uh, for me, and um, and during that time, I just I, I you know always used to paint and draw and so on as a kid. But I really got caught up in in film, but purely as a as a study, more or less, an unofficial. It wasn't a course or anything mm-hmm. like that. And just as I was graduating, 
uh, there was a film competition at, at the university to make a one-minute film. And I was in the middle of my final exams at one of my brothers. I said, hey, I've got an idea. Why don't you, tr you try doing th that? And, and the film competition, uh, it won the prize, and the prize was to go to the first ever film workshop uh, in another city, Melbourne, at a university there. And my brother went, and, and uh, one way or another, I thought that would be really interesting before I started working as a doctor in a big city hospital. And I managed to talk my way into it. And that's where I met... Um, a whole bunch of people. There are only forty people there, but there was um, my my eventual filmmaking partner, Byron Kennedy, uh, uh, Philip Noyce, the director. He taught me how to use an old Bolex camera, <laughs> and it was uh, and that was the beginning of that was just just coinciding with the time when uh, there was a rise in Australian filmmaking. There was a whole lot of there was there were filmmakers cooperatives, a whole lot of directors making short films and eventually going into features right through the seventies. And I got caught up in that, and uh, but it was never it was never a career. Then. Well, that's what just, I have to ask you yeah. because my understanding is that when the idea of the original Mad Max came along, you were actually a practicing physician. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Obviously. You were. What, were, what was your day, average day, and how did this intrude upon it? Well, <laughs> well, by then, what what I was doing, I was so having had got my hands on film and cutting film and. And you know, you do, you do anything to work on a film. If someone wanted a camera assistant or a sound recordist, uh, you you just get up and do it. So I, I was tending to work as a doctor uh, on weekends, and then working on films for nothing, uh, as everyone was during during the week. And um, basically, we made some shorts. Um, uh, they, they they got some recognition. There was no way to make a living from short so we said okay let's let's try to make a feature uh, this is Byron Kennedy and myself and uh, we we raised three hundred fifty thousand dollars the usual thing and uh, how did you do that you're a doctor from, uh, not that doctors don't have wealthy friends but I mean you had not done a feature so how do you raise the money well we prepared this film enormously um, and then we just went to friends and friends of friends mm -hmm. and uh, it took us longer to raise $350,000 than it was to make the film, <laughs> to, to make the entire film. But it, it got there, and uh, and I didn't know really, uh, I didn't know much uh, uh, about filmmaking, but all that sort of just pure interest in film language and, and how the, the things were being made. I mean, I remember we used to read American Cinematographer and try to sort of... <laughs> decode all the pictures what's that equipment what's this equipment and uh it was a, it was a really good time because uh, it was tough but it was a good time because uh you know we we were able to make the film we made it we wanted to make the first Mad Max anamorphic and we couldn't afford it and uh, but there were some lenses that were kind of dumped down in Australia that Sam Peckinpah had used on uh, the getaway mm -hmm. And we got the lenses, and only one of them really worked well, which is the wide-angle 35mm lens. And we shot the film on that, <laughs> and then we got all this. Oh, we, we, we sort of very interesting using very wide-angle lenses in, in um, car action. And it really worked in our favour, but it was, it was almost accidental because that was the one lens that really worked in the anamorphic. <laughs> so jumping back for a second, where did the idea of this guy, Mad Max, even come from? And also... How did it wind up being set in a post-apocalyptic world as opposed to a modern-day world? Well, um, the very first Mad Max, uh, as I said, very very low budget, and and the story, the story, you know, looking back, there's a lot of things conspire to make any kind of story. Um, one of the big drivers of it, I was really really interested in in the in the action movie, particularly the 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 language of it, which, you know, I remember reading a book, The Parade's Gone By by Kevin Brownlow, a very, very influential book, where he basically said that this new language, the syntax of it was basically forged in the silent era, before sound, when, when suddenly all the equipment made filmmaking uh, quite quite cumbersome for, for a decade or so. Um, but so, you know, I went back and uh, whenever I could, I get to see the Buster Keaton movies and the Harold Lloyd movies and, and so on. And then in the 70s, some great action movies being made and, and uh, you know, Bullet and, and, and French Connection and all those sort of things. And, 
and 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 Steven Spielberg's Jewel was a wonderful film that he made. We were very young, and all those things uh, were really interesting to me. Um, on the other side, however, by then I had been working as a doctor for quite a while, and we had a very big car culture in Australia, and I saw the the other side of it that's the sort of road trauma and uh, autocide and all that all that stuff and those two things that sort of really that did affect me um it, it can't help it after a while and um so we we decided to do this movie it initially was set in contemporary uh, australia the film was very exaggerated and hyperbolic and it i don't know how well it would have s sat there but we couldn't afford to shoot in main streets. We couldn't afford to populate the street <laughs> with cars and people. We couldn't afford buildings, uh, you know, to pay the location fee. So we went to isolated back streets <laughs> on the edge of the city and and we went to really derelict buildings where people said you can go in for nothing. And, um, and, and so to account for that, put the little logo at the beginning which said a few years from now <laughs> and and that was that was the process it sort of it solved those two problems and it wasn't until the film um, uh, which I thought boy it'll be we'll be lucky if it gets released but it wasn't until it started to have resonance in in countries like Japan and France and all, all over all over really uh, and and I realised somehow we we tapped into some you know archetype, some pretty pretty like the Max character is a is a kind of wandering loner which we've seen in the westerns and it's in it's in all it's in all mythology. Uh, so by the time by the time we did Mad Max two, that was an opportunity to sort of after processing all that and mainly uh, to to get into a film where I was able to sort of put in place all the things I had learned from making the first film. How much did that first film, which I think came out in Australia in 79, but in the U.S. in 80, I believe, yeah. how much did that change your life and career? Number one, never ever thought in terms of a career. In a way, I still don't. I'm, I'm drawn to film by, by, by a sense of inquiry. Something about story and the technology to, to, to make the film. Um, the, the very first one, it was, you know, there, there was a great quote from um, Hunter S. Thompson, mm -hmm. who said when he wrote, I think, one of the first gonzo bit of journalism for Rolling Stone, that he did in a kind of frenzy, and he thought it wasn't going to work. And when it did get, a, you know, a dramatic response, he said it was like falling down an elevator shaft into a pool of mermaids. <laughs> now, a similar thing happened to me. Mad Max, was so, the first one was so difficult. And we ran out of money, so I had to cut the picture. We were in post, and Byron Kennedy cut the sound. Uh, and um, and I was confronted for over almost a year with all the mistakes I made, uh, because I thought, why did I do that? Why did I do this? And it turned out to be the best sort of film school. You could get very deep learning, and. Um, so I, I was no, under no illusion that suddenly I was a, a you know a, a smart filmmaker. I felt we did enough work in the preparation. We got through the movie, and it still had enough going. So I then determined to sort of really learn to learn as much as possible. I, I realised I knew nothing about acting. Um, I went to acting classes. Uh, I. Then we, we also started to produce television, and it's the first time I'd really worked with other directors and see, to see how they worked and so on. So I had to sort of, you know, you're learning on the run. You always are. I'm still, I'm still learning. But you were able to leave being a physician fully behind after the first one? Well, I stayed registered because uh, there was a requirement that you have a doctor on set if you're doing stunts. <laughs> and I stayed, I did that for about another five years, particularly we did... Two more Mad Maxes, and right. during the television, we were do doing that. But but then but then, I went to medical school with my twin brother, and I realised as time went on, uh, you know, I was losing my, my ability uh, as a doctor. I knew the basic stuff, but you know, like everything, you have to practice sure. to, to be any good at it. And is it true that the first Mad Max had to be dubbed here because the accents were too thick for Americans? Is that? Correct. Yeah, that was really <laughs> wild. That was that was quite that was a, a big moment because um, uh, 
they they the film was released by Warner's internationally and did very very well but in North America everyone felt um, uh, it, it was Samuel Ziarkov uh, from AIP yeah, yeah. American International Pictures it was right it was it was right down their alley but he said look if you wanted to be seen outside of LA and New York um, we have to people can't understand the Australian accent in fact Back then, in a lot of places, people thought we're surprised we spoke English, <laughs> because it's you know it's it's not the modern age of communication; right, right, it's a long right. way away. So all the voices were dubbed, uh, including Mel Gibson's, who, who was who was born in the United States <laughs> and, and still had uh, a, a, an American accent, and 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 Hughie's Byrne, who plays the 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 toe cutter, the 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 bad guy in that movie, and. Indeed, thirty years later, plays uh, the the Morton Joe in, yes. in Fury Road. Now he was from the Royal Shakespeare Company. There was a very very celebrated production of Midsummer Night's Dream that travelled the, the world. It was directed by Peter Brook, and it had, literally had gone around the world for over, over a year. And they landed in Australia in their in the final production. And a lot of those actors stayed. And so he he's somebody who. You know, classically trained actor, and when it was released in Britain, all his friends turned up, um, including I think Ben Kingsley at the time, uh, to see it. And I think they were in the in, in, in the Royal Shakespeare Company together. And here he speaks, and there's a southern drawl coming out of his mouth, and his family was sort of. This is what this, this is where he ends up, and it was. But that was the last time it happened because right. you know, within a within a couple of years, uh, the you know the people were starting to to pick up on the Australian accent, and I think by the time a movie like Crocodile Dundee came out, it was you know everyone sort of welcomed the accent. But it it was it was a strange thing to do. It's funny, and yeah. you mentioned that at the time there weren't many. Aussies in American cinema, you kind of helped to usher in this new wave of folks, right? Because in the time since the first Mad Max, Nicole Kidman, Naomi Watts, Kate Blanchett, yeah. on and on and on, yeah. and uh, now you got people like Ben Mendelsohn and and so yeah. many. Why do you think it took so long for Americans to realize that there was great talent in Australia? It it takes time. <laughs> um, there were. Australia, you know, it's a relatively small country. It's it's relatively um, isolated, uh, but and and most Australians would tend to go to Britain. If you like actors like Peter Finch and 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 those, they'd work in the theatre here, and then they end up in in Britain. They're, you know, so many of them. Very very few people went to the United States back in the thirties and the silent era. There were stunt guys and cameramen. And some directors, um, uh, John Farrow, you know, Mia Farrow's father, and so on. He, they, they came, but m- most of the actors went to Britain, and virtually became British actors. Um, but then, yeah, it was with the rise. I mean, Mel would have been one of the first, oh, okay. and, and 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 you know, Nicole, and and all, all of those actors. They would do. The interesting thing about them is they're all doing. Uh, to survive, we're doing a lot of different work, so they, had, they became multi-skilled. In, a, in other words, it, it, um, you know, you take Hugh Jackman; uh-huh. he was doing musical theatre. He was doing. I mean, he, he came along later, but he was doing. He was doing everything. He was doing soaps. He was just doing everything. So by the time he sort of arrived on the world stage, he had a very, very broad skill. Um, Eric Banner was interesting. He had a talk show like really? Letterman. It's called Banner. He did he did a Saturday Night Live equivalent, and the first time anyone heard about him, he was doing a hardcore drama like uh, um, Chopper. Yeah. So, but very very broad skill, and it was a it, it, you could fail uh, anonymously in Australia. <laughs> so, you, and they were very very hard working. That was the other thing. Now, for you, had an international career always been sort of a ambition? Not really. It was. Um, I mean, I mean, film is international, um, and I was lucky enough that the first one we made uh, was, I guess, an international success. I mean, it, uh, so so um, it wasn't. I mean, I did 
I did work in the United States uh, back in the early 80s. Uh, I made made one of those segments as a Twilight Zone movie and mm-hmm. made a segment of that and had a wonderful time on that because I was, was working with Stephen um, and Frank Marshall, Kathy Kennedy, Joe Dante, John Davison, a whole bunch of mm-hmm. really hardcore filmmakers and it felt very, very comfortable and it was... We had, we had, you know, it was just really, really interesting working on that. So I said, oh, it's just making films in Los Angeles is the same as making them in, in anywhere. Mm-hmm. By the time I got to Witches of Eastwick, I'd let my guard down. I didn't pay much attention uh, to what was happening behind the camera, uh, the the producers and you know, the studio politics and, and so on and so on. And what what I I didn't realize that. I got caught up in a worst-case scenario where people mistook politeness for weakness, and that indeed um, you're you're um, you were being rewarded for bad behaviour, and and uh, and in a, in a sense punished for good behaviour. I'll give you an example. One of the first meetings we had, we sat down, say, like we do always mm-hmm. in film. Okay, how can we trim the budget? And rather foolishly, I said, oh, look, you know, I don't need a trailer because I'm never in a trailer. Uh, I'm always with the actors or on set and so on. So that's that's a kind of waste of time. And, and now that makes sense, logical sense. But to them it meant I was negotiable on anything. Mm-hmm. So when I said I need, I'm going to need four camera crews today, uh, only two would, would, would arrive. So uh, I... So pretty soon I thought, well, okay, that's the game. I, I'll over-order. Right, right. And when they complained, I'd say, but, but I'd say, but you know, th- this is the game that you're teaching me. Mm-hmm. And the one person who got me through the movie, as this went on and on, was Jack Nicholson, who's incredibly, incredibly wise man, and that's one of been one of the great privileges of my my life to be working with that because he sort of he sort of took me in hand and he said, this is how you play this game here. <laughs> um, but he taught me much more about filmmaking. He taught me a lot about life. He's um, he's, he's just one of those you know, deeply considered people. Who, and uh, anyway, the that, that, that was the, so. When I finished that, I remember thinking, you know, this film took all the curiosity out of the process of making films. So I went back and did some more producing. We we uh, went straight back and we uh, produced Dead Calm, that that, that film that mm-hmm. uh, first got Nicole. Uh, known and and um, and then I didn't make another film until uh, I directed another film until Renzo's Oil. And was that because the Witches of Eastwick experience had sort of turned you off from the idea of at least an American kind of project? Yes, I thought. Well, well as I say, I lost I lost that thing that drove me a kind of a sense of a sense of inquiry um, and. Um, and also, my first child came along, and I thought, you know, I'm, until I get the appetite to, to do it again, I, I really enjoyed producing, uh, and um, and and the, the Lorenzo's oil thing was was something that uh, I'd read this story, uh, and because of my medical background, I thought if this is true about parents actually actually um, finding. Uh, a way to arrest a devastating, very rare disease in their child, which I actually did. I thought this was an extraordinary story, and um, and so that was that was made in a kind of hurry, and it was kind of a like we were on a mission to to get that story out, and that that, that rekindled my, 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 my you know my my appetite for and just so films. people remember, you co-wrote and directed that, and you guided Susan Sarandon to an Oscar nomination. So that one was yeah. a very successful experience. One other one that I sense from what I've read may have been another one of these perhaps frustrating ones was Contact. You were supposed to direct that, right? Or you yes. started out directing it. Yeah, yes. What happened? Well, um, uh, that, 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 that again, you know, there's, there's always the, the good with the bad. I had an extraordinary year um, in preparation uh, for, for, with that film, uh, working with... Uh, Carl Sagan, uh, Annie Duran, uh, his wife, they co-wrote the book. Uh, Menno Mayer's a screenwriter who's who's working on that, and that was that was a very very uh, privileged process because I, 
I was always interested in science and, and physics in particular, and I really get down deep into that. And then at a certain point, um, and the studio were very, very enthusiastic, but to make that film properly, there had to be a certain daring to it. You couldn't, be, you couldn't play it safe. And as time went on, the bottom basically what happened was that the that the studio wanted to push it back into something that in a sense was made much more mainstream it was, it was a it was a cerebral film in one way because it was really talking about us as humankind and and um and it it sort of tended to lose its poetry and at a certain point i thought oh gosh uh uh this 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 film the pressures on this film, and it was their project. It wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't my project. The, the the pressures on this film, it's going to it's going to end up uh, not so good. So basically, we agreed to part. And was part of that? There, I remember something about in parting. Were you able to regain the rights to Mad Max for the future, or what was there? Was some sort of a a positive that came out of that, right? Well, there was a litigation on fees mm-hmm. and. Um, and and at a certain point, oh, that's right. We 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 went over to uh, Universal and did Babe there. And uh, but but Barry Meyer, a wonderful man who who took a, took over at Warner Brothers at that point, said, you know, why are we in um, litigation with 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 George? And uh, you know, we should be making films. So. We sat down. It was all all signed very very quickly, and uh, and in uh, you know in response to that, we 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 we've been with Warner Brothers since then because um, I think the next thing that came along was was Happy Feet, right? Uh, and we said, oh, you know, interested in this, and they said, yeah, let's let's give it a shot. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. So the question that I think has sort of been on my mind and a lot of people's mind as they've seen Mad Max Fury Road and sort of put the pieces together as more and more attention has been placed on you and people are going back and looking at the filmography and everything is how can the same guy who makes the Mad Max movies, first of all, produce Babe and then direct Babe, Pig in the City, Happy Feet, Happy Feet 2. It's hard to wrap our head around it. What's the explanation? Well, uh, people, <laughs> when people started to ask that question, I, 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 I thought it was normal. Uh, <laughs> but uh, even my mother said after, she said after uh, she saw uh, Fury Road, she said, George, when you were making these other films, I, I thought you were settling down somehow. <laughs> she said, and, and uh, you know, what's going on in your mind? But... <laughs> But my best answer, at least on the surface of it, is that um, when I was young uh, and had no children, uh, I would go to the, you know, I learned to make movies in the cinema, as we all do. So I'd go to see everything. When kids come along, you can't spontaneously say, hey, let's go and see this movie and so on. <laughs> so you, the way you get to the movies is to is to go with your kids. So I'm watching lots of kids' films. So... Unwittingly, I'm alert to those stories, and I remember. And you're reading a lot of kids' books and whatever. And I remember listening to a radio review of this book, Sheep Pig, which became Babe, and listening to the. It was the BBC, and it was some woman. I don't know who she was, but I'm very grateful to her because she, as she was reviewing this book, she started to laugh um, in a in a very infectious way I thought something about this book uh, 
it really got to her. So I got the book and read it, and and uh, it, it's a very charming book. But the interesting thing was that that basically followed Baby's a classic hero, you know, Joseph Campbell hero follows the archetype, you know, the agent of change, um, relinquishing his own self-interest, he changes his, his world. And I thought, well, we've got to make this movie, but I didn't realise it would take um, close to five years before the digital age came. And you need, to make that, those animals talk, you couldn't do cell animation. No. It's not a kinetic movie. So I got caught up in, in making those kids' films. And, uh, you know, I tried to go and do movies like Contact and things like right, that, but they right. weren't to be. And uh, and now my kids have grown up and, uh, and you know, I go back to Mad Max. <laughs> Everything I'd read previous to today and now being with you today, you seem like a very sunny, happy, nice guy to be making darker movies. Where does that impulse come from? Like blood bags and all the stuff in these Mad Max movies, it's pretty dark stuff. Well, I don't know. People say that too. I, I don't have... Perhaps because I have a, a darker imagination, but to be honest, uh, the stuff out of, of Fury Road and the great attraction of, of of making these Mad Max films is that they're allegories, and in that sense, you take from the world. And even though it looks like a you know a helter skelter rambunctious film, there's had to be a very very strong internal logic to the to the movie. And Blood Bags, for instance, I mean. Um, in, in in a lot of recent wars uh, where they don't have refrigeration, they would take prisoners, and depending on their blood types, they would they would use them uh, take blood directly out of people. Wow. The the um, virtually everything the film in the film has has real world derived out of the real world, if not present day, uh, certainly historically. And what's really interesting is there are patterns in human behaviour. Uh, that repeat themselves throughout all space and time, really. You see the same patterns of dominance hierarchies where the, the very, very few control all the resources at the expense of the many. It's just... And we see modern in, incarnations of that as well. So in a way, I think you really don't know what, what films what your films are until a long time after you make them. Well, that was the thing I have to ask you because, I mean, one of the things that people love about Fury Road is all the subtextual stuff, the feminism, the stuff about the environment and water scarcity and suicide missions and just things that are not overtly what it's about. But I've seen interviews where filmmakers are asked about things and, you know, a critic has a whole profound interpretation and they say, you know what, it never occurred to me. So I wonder for you how much of this was a deliberate attempt to kind of get a greater amount of substance into a genre that sometimes lacks it. Well, it's it's. I think it's a function of storytelling. Um, you, it's, and that was the interesting exercise. Um, still, basically trying to unravel the mystery of of, of what I call sort of the the, the language of film that, through the action through the moving pictures. I really wondered if we if we made a film, how much people could pick up on the run, not only uh, of the characters, the relationship with the characters, but indeed a world which felt uniquely familiar. Uh, the that somehow you you see the resonances, perhaps in a not directly, but in a poetic or uh, uh, you know these are basically fables or allegories, and as in all storytelling. Uh, they are metaphorical, and, 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 and it's for us to read into them according to our worldview. So the one strategy we had was to make sure that everybody in the film was working to the same sort of ground rules. Mm-hmm. Interesting enough, when we first you know, wrote the film, uh, for instance, just take these, these war boys, these half-life war boys, um, dying valiantly in battle uh, in an attempt to get to some sort of warrior paradise. Um, they were based on the... the the Japanese uh, kamikaze, mm-hmm. uh, and th- that's been in history uh, th- throughout. Um, and because of the delays of the film, now it's been seen as suicide bombers sure. and so on and so on. But as I say, these same impulses are there in humankind sure. right throughout. And the great thing about the Mad Max is why they're so seductive is that you, it's like going forward to the past, you, you, even though it's 40, 45, 50 years hence. 
uh, in in a failed world, you're really going back to a medieval and, and, and a time where where the world is much more elemental. And so you, these things you can you can you can tease out. So uh-huh. your answer is there was a lot of that stuff there. You're putting it in there, and and is a kind of visual to- tone. Uh, Poem, I don't know, mm-hmm. and you're and and you're hoping that people pick it up on the run, and and that's been the great delight because people have picked it up, and, and you're right. There's stuff that comes out that I never knew that was there. I didn't know that in a lot of cultures, that the the left arm, uh, I'm talking about Furiosa mm-hmm. Charlize's character, uh, is is regarded as the female arm, and having lost her arm, that that had some significance. I mean. The main reason it was the left arm is because uh, it was to save money because it was more hidden by the door, <laughs> so he didn't have to do it. So those little things come right. up, but a lot of the other stuff is there. The, like, the, the feminism just came out of the story. The tyrannical behaviour mm-hmm. came out of history. The architecture of the Citadel is... Uh, you know, became fascinated with citadels all around the world. They, 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 they're all the same. Before people had, they didn't know of each other. Right. And the architecture of all citadels was virtually the same. I think you wanted to make this additional installment. I don't know if it was specifically Fury Road and in, in the way it came to be, but you wanted to make another installment for something like 17 years. At one time, it was going to be Mel Gibson, I think. Another time, it was going to be Heath Ledger. So basically, A, why did it take as long as it did to come to fruition? And B, could you just clarify, is this a sequel, a reboot? You know, How does it relate to the previous installments? Well, to answer that first, um, it, it doesn't, in a way. If it was to make a film which was basically remaking or a direct sequel from what, what happened in the past. I mean, it, it's just a repetition. It had to be uniquely familiar. It had to be enough familiarity. So the chase in a, in a war rig was more like uh, Road Warrior. Uh, uh, but there's no real continuity, just as there wasn't between the first three. There, right, I right. never intended to make the first three. And this one came along, and it was an opportunity to take what was there repurpose it in a way and take into account all the ways in which uh, the world has changed in terms of cinema. Uh, the world has changed. Uh, the, we're reading films way, way faster than we do. We're speed reading films compared to what we did in yes. the past. And, and, and I've changed and the technology's changed. So it was an opportunity to put you know, fold all that stuff in there. Um, in terms of the delay, we wrote this stuff, I don't know if it was 17 years ago, but Gee, by, by now it would be. It was, it was last millennium, uh, <laughs> in 1999, I think, there was, uh, we had the script or 2000, and that's when we'd cast Mel. We prepared to, to, starting up to do the movie. When 9-11 happened, we were shooting in American dollars, but, but uh, in, in Australia, and the, when 9-11 happened, everything seized up. Mm. The, the American dollar uh, fell by 25%, so we... Over, overnight virtually lost 25% of our budget and there were delays we couldn't get all the planets aligned again so I went on to Happy Feet and mm-hmm. that, that you know the first animation we had done and, I, and that was uh, you know that was four years and then by, by the time we kicked it off again we started going again uh, and uh, uh, and we were almost shooted by now with Tom Hardy, and then we had unprecedented rains out in the center of Australia. Uh, you said Tom Hardy or, or yeah. Heath? Well, Heath, in the meantime, uh, Mel had hit all that turbulence in his life. A lot of time had gone by. And every time he'd come through Sydney, uh, uh, Heath would visit, we'd have, we'd have a chat. And and um, and we talked about Mad Max. Because he, he had that same quality, as does Tom that very charismatic energy when he walks in the room where there's 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 something there's a lot of stuff bubbling under the surface the three of them have, have had that in common and i remember mel when he was young he's only you know just 21 straight out of the national drama school when he walked into the room with with all his skills and so on but you know, I didn't know, as I said before, much about acting or, or even the notion of charisma, but I just felt something. And, I, and, and Heath, as we all know, had that, and, and, and Tom has it. Um, so 
anyway, uh, as time went on, when we finally got ready to go again, there was uh, Tom was the only other actor who who had that quality, which I felt was needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, but then there were further delays because of you know we really wanted to shoot in Australia, the, the sort of spiritual home of Australia is the outback uh, of Australia, a place called Broken Hill, but it. It turned into a field of flowers. The red earth turned into a field of flowers. Because there's been field. a lot of rain recently. No, no. The, it, this was back in 2010, I think. Ah. And it hadn't rained so heavily in uh, in, te- in, te- in 15 years. And, you know, we had we had roads built. We prepared the whole film. And um, and suddenly, you know, what's what latent underneath the earth are these beautiful flowers. <laughs> and they were sort of up to waist high and we we lost our wasteland so we waited warners to their credit said um well, okay let's wait a year um and see what happens uh if it dries out we were shooting the great salt lakes in, in the center of australia and they were they they became full of pelicans and frogs <laughs> i mean where where the frogs came from come from <laughs> I don't know. But they flooded, followed the flood waters there anyway it's all dried out again unfortunately uh, so we we waited and then we went to the west coast of Africa where it never rains in Namibia and that was great almost all of your team that you worked with on this film the behind the scenes team I think many of whom have been recognized like you with with Academy Award nominations are Australian and I wondered how important it was you know to work with these people somebody like John Seal to get him out of retirement to do this your wife is the great film editor of this with I think the stat that people should know 2,700 cuts on this one versus 1,200 on Mad Max 2. That's incredible. That's right, yeah. So just how important was it to be surrounded by this group of folks? And also, did you get flack for not having an Aussie Max? Well, um, it, it as it turned out, it was very important uh, to have these people. I mean, Johnny Seal had worked with on only once on Lorenzo's Oil. And he was a great operator. Uh, as well as a, a light, a, you know, cinematographer, he was, you know, really, really great with the camera. And um, so he did come out of retirement. He, he was a great sailor as well. He was about to go on a sail uh, in the Pacific, but he he, he uh, said he asked his wife Louise. They said, "Come on, let's do it." And, <laughs> and he turned seventy on the movie, wow. but he was operating that camera. He was on up on top of vehicles and underneath it and in the cabin. And he, he lent so much to this movie. I'm, I'm so glad he was able to do it. Um, Margaret, my wife, uh, you know, she'd done a lot of cutting. Action is not her thing. Uh, and uh, and she said, you know, why me? I said, look, you're going to bring something. I know, I know the way you do everything. You're going to bring an, an element of rigor to it. Uh, and it's it's not really about the action. It's all about the you know all that other stuff. I knew she had the skill to do it, and she was back in Australia, and we were just loading her up with all this footage while we were shooting it. And 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 I was trying to give her as much uh, you know direction as possible of what, what I wanted, but we, you know we, we even communication was difficult. <laughs> and uh, so you know a, a, across halfway across the world but she she managed to sort of beat it into shape it was uh yeah my, my answer is yes it's uh, it, of course it's important mm-hmm. and, and it's great to see the work recognized you yeah. know it's uh and that, that that was a really really big thing and Charlize did not get a nomination but she has received a lot of acclaim was that role always intended to be played by a woman oh yeah once it was a chase what was being in what what what, what people were chasing about uh, was was to be human, and it was to be. It started off as seven wives, but we couldn't fit them all into the cabin, so it was much more sensible <laughs> to make it, make it, uh, uh, make it fire. Because in Aboriginal and Native Australian mm-hmm. uh, culture, there there are stories of seven women, go back forty thousand years, fleeing some some male principal who's after them for some reason, mm-hmm. and it helps define the landscape in the Aboriginal culture. Um, so anyway. That's beside the point. They, if there were to be five wives escaping a tyrant, it had to be a female road warrior. So that was the character. It had to be because because if it was a if it was a male warrior, that's a different story. One man stealing the five wife breeders of another man is a different story. <laughs> that's that's about right, possession. Right, right, right. This right. was someone 
helping them escape makes in, in a way to re- redeem it. I mean, imagine Max goes in and steals five wives. That's a different <laughs> thing. And then the whole idea, like in all these stories, that Max reluctantly gets swept up into all those stories. Sure. So that was there. And Charlize was, again, the only actor I could think of to play the role. And lucky she was available and lucky when the film got delayed that she was still oh, available right. and, uh, and she, yeah, she blew me away. Obviously, it was a stressful, high-octane set. Tom even publicly apologized to you for some of his attitude. He wasn't sure what was going on. There were some reports that he and Charlize were bucking heads. What is true? Well, it was true to the extent... Two things. It's a very, very difficult film to to act because there's no, not many set pieces. No sooner you're saying action as a director, you're yelling cut. There's very hard for them to get in, their teeth into and they're, and, they're, and you know they're both very very skilled actors um, and so a lot of the film was was you know very well prepared I mean that's what allowed us to do it you had to be we, we got through that film very safely and in very uh, arduous circumstances so we had fantastic stunt crew and rigging crew and uh, and under Guy Norris, uh, and but it was very difficult for the actors to get their their teeth into. That's the first thing. The other thing is we shot in chronology. You had to mm-hmm. again. We were out there in the real world, and um, you couldn't account for attrition that would happen to the vehicles or all the characters on the way through. So the film started off where um, Tom uh, or Max and Furiosa don't really engage until 20 minutes into the movie and that first scene is a fight where, where they're both basically trying to kill each other and and I think that seeped into the work in some way and it, interestingly enough and I'm not saying this is method but being out there in in that in that environment uh, with with you know hard work every day uh, and it was a very physical movie mm-hmm. uh, just as the characters develop a kind of positive regard for each other, uh, and and only through that is, is do they have any hope of surviving. That, I think that happened. So it got better characters. as it went along. It, it got better as it, as it was. <laughs> but also, um, it's very very hard for an actor to know when you've got all this stuff happening. It's, 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 you know, film is a mosaic art, and I would say that Mad Max more than most is is made up of those little pieces so it really wasn't until uh, they saw the film virtually complete did, did, did they really understand what you know what at least I was attempting to right. do and that's, that was very 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 that's so lovely about Tom but he, he publicly said that he said I didn't really know what was going on uh, um, and, and, and you know an actor has to help you know, you, you're there watching and being quite vigilant to make sure that there's some sort of shape and contour to their performance. But also an actor, particularly an actor from the theatre like Tom is, uh, they have to, you know, they, 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 they feel they have to, to account for that as well. But um, So that, that, that's, that's the, the truth of it. So the movie comes out, premieres at Cannes, comes out in America in May, rapturously received by critics and audiences, did you expect the degree to which that happened? And also, could you ever have imagined that we would be sitting here nine months later, ten Oscar nominations later, including one for Best Picture, one for Best Director, still talking about this movie at this time? Not in a million years, <laughs> seriously. I mean, particularly particularly out there in the desert. And I was so happy when the film came out in May that it got, you know, I've never had reviews like that. And... and and they were very full-hearted. Even even if there was negative comments, it was it was. It's hard to write a review. You see a movie and then you have to respond to it straight away. Usually, it takes time. You have to reflect on the movies that you you know you're interested in. And uh, to see that, I thought, wow, that was just wonderful. But then to still be talking about it all this time later, so many great movies came out this year. You know, I thought, wow. We got lucky somehow. <laughs> you were 34 when the first Mad Max came out. You were 70 when this one came out. And yet this one feels as much as the first, like a film of a, of a young man. How old do you feel and what's next for you? Some people want Mad Max Furiosa Road. Some people want, you know, they're, they're already clamoring for the next thing. So basically, how do you feel and what do you hope to do next? Well, 
I remember I got to know Peter Yusinov back out. He was in Lorenzo's Oil, and I was in in, 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 in an interview with him, and uh, I remember someone saying, um, "So, how old do you feel?" And he said, "Well, inside, I feel like a, a 30, 34 year old or something like that." But he said, "When I look in the mirror, that's clearly not the case." <laughs> and um, so. It, it, it's a it's a question of that curiosity, that sense of inquiry, and I definitely have it. I I realized I always knew, but I realize it even more now that you could be making films for a thousand years and still never have any real sense of mastery because there's so much. The more you unveil, the more there there is to know. And you know what made me feel good about Fury Road is that is that it felt fresh. I mean, the big risk of this movie was that it's just a rehash of what we'd done 30 years ago and everything's changed like that. So the fact that... So so that that's a good thing. I um, I definitely have an appetite for, for making films, but, but my, my family says, can you do something a little smaller and quicker? <laughs> and uh, so that's my intention at the moment. Right. But I'm, I'm, I'm still really interested in that world of Fury Road, mainly because it's a really great... Um, as I said, they're, they're allegories, and it's a really great way to engage with what you see in the world and, and who we are as human beings. It's, it's true. I, I find it really fascinating um, that so many uh, of the so many of the ways we behave uh, tend to get repeated over and over again, and it's quite, it's quite shocking in a way. It's and, and the only thing that seems to change us is technological advances. You know, I spoke about Byron Kennedy before. Well, he uh, he was killed in a helicopter accident where we started making films together, and he was a real technical freak. I mean, he taught himself to work on cameras, and, 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 and 33 years ago, he had no idea that there was going to be an internet. If he saw a smartphone, um, he, uh, he, he would not have believed it. Right. And... Uh, just everything, the cameras, the, the, the way they've been. Well, now you so can like, make a film out of a smartphone. <laughs> you can make a film, Tangerine. I right. mean, that blew me away. I mean, and, and providing you've got the content and the, right. and, the, and the enthusiasm and whatever, you can do it. It's so accessible. So that 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 that, that curiosity is there, and uh, you know. And now, now it's all I can do. I'm, I'm, I'm hardwired for story now. I, that's that's all I can do. I, I used to do things with my hands as a kid, and, and to some extent as a doctor. And I do nothing with my hands. I'm always there fiddling with props and things, but I'm not good at it. And now, so all I can sit there and dream up stories. So. Great. I'll do it as long as I can. Please do, and thank you so much for this film and for coming in and doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.